I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He's still alive, isn't he? Not only is he alive, but you should see his wiki entry. He's a trustee of Duke University, has been honoured with the United States Silver Medal of Patriotism, the Versailles Award of France, and made an officer of the Order of Canada. Johnson maintains homes in Caledon, Ontario, Jupiter, Florida, and Sparta Township, New Jersey. (laughs) Didn't he do well? Didn't he do well. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode three of the FT Business Book Challenge podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor. With me is Sarah Gordon, Business Editor, and Martin Dixon, the FT's former Deputy Editor. Hello. 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 Welcome to you both. The idea is simple. We're challenging you to read six classic business books in 12 weeks. Each book is chosen by an FT columnist. You get two weeks to read it before we haul our colleague back into the studio to talk about what makes their choice of business book great. And we would love it if you joined in the discussion by tweeting us using the hashtag FTBizBooks or by emailing us at businessbookclub at ft.com. This week, we have reached our second challenge. In episode two, Sarah set us the task of reading Barbarians at the Gate by Brian Burrow and John Halyar a forensic account of the leveraged buyout of RJR Nabisco. But before we get to that book, here's the question we always start with. Sarah, what are you reading at the moment? I'm rereading, as I do most years, A Dance to the Music of Time by Anthony Pohl, which many people think is an outdated and snobbish work. It's a series of (laughs) ten novels about a man in London in the... after Well, he was born in the First World, just before the First World War. So it's last century, essentially, in this country. And its theme is that certain people come back in your life certain things repeat themselves in your life and that when you get to the end of it it's only when you get to the end of it that you look back and you see a pattern emerging and a structure um, which and it isn't necessarily the people that you would you would have chosen and I think it's actually very relevant for the book we're discussing because it's the way I mean having now been in you know business or journalism for getting on for well 30 years What's really depressing in a way is how the same mistakes keep repeating themselves, the same yes. things keep happening again and again and again. You know, there's always some sort of proper gap of, you know, X number of years where enough people forget yes. what went wrong last time. Yes. And then they do it all over <laughs> and again. And then they do it exactly. When when was it written? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean sort of nineteen fifties to sixties. I mean it took him a while to so, so, to write ten novels. So long enough for those lessons to have been lost well yes I mean well I mean I don't think the um I wouldn't say there were lessons for you know real lessons for business I was being slightly facetious from a dance to the music of time but I think the the way 
that you don't see a pattern until you get to a certain age. I think Martin and I can probably, you know, as you get older, you do start to see patterns, you don't do. you? Yes. And what are you reading, Martin? <laughs> uh, I've got two things on the go at the moment. One, a book called Iron Men by David Waller, a former FT colleague, which is about uh, a man called Henry Maudsley, who was an early engineering pioneer in the UK in the early 19th century and is, has been described as the sort of founder of the apple of his age. And the other book I'm reading is called Golden Hill by Francis Spufford, set in uh, New York in the 1740s and is an absolute tour de force of imagination of what it would like to be in that city at that time. I was at um, university with him. Oh, were yes, you? He was a great friend. He was known as Frank then, but he's become, with great success, he's become known as Francis. <laughs> you say that you have two books on the go, Martin. Yes. Is, is that normally how you read? Are you happy to have several books? Yes, I tend to have one on my bedside table to read at night uh, and one to read during the day yeah. and possibly several more. Yeah. And what are the management lessons that are coming out of those books? Golly, uh, well, Iron Men, the management lessons are multiple. I mean, Maudsley was a man who was involved, was a prime mover in the precision engineering which allowed mass production to develop in the 19th century with interchangeable parts. So this was a sort of huge breakthrough in terms of um, the Industrial Revolution. And it all began, or he began, uh, at the uh, naval dockyards in Portsmouth um, when uh, the Navy, which required 100,000 blocks pulleys a year to uh, fit out the naval fleet and asked him to to move them from a from a system of craft wooden blocks to metal blocks uh, and he did this with huge success um, but of course a lot of people were thrown out of work along the way so there's obviously a lesson about the destructive and and creative nature of in industrial change mm. i've read barbarians at the gate for the first time and i was struck by as you said the the themes and how modern it seemed in many ways, you know, how, how the short termism, you know, the, the corporate debt, all these big themes in it that, that just seem very, very modern to me. It could have been written today. It really exactly. could have been written today. And I think that one of the things I most liked about the book was um, in the epilogue. I don't know if you remember this bit, Martin. It has this fantastic phrase about by the 1990s, the Wall Street leverage buyout fever was over. You thought, yes. no, it wasn't. <laughs> so I think there, there was that um, that uh, element of thinking it was a one-off. You yes. know? I mean, the leverage by the, the LBO was created in the early 1980s, essentially. You had this frenzy of LBO activity, which in a sense culminated really in, in this deal, the takeover of RJR Nabisco by KKR. But it was seen as the end of an era, whereas, of course, in fact, I mean, you know, there are still enormous leverage. I mean, it's gone on being it's a structure being... that's used and abused in deals ever since. Absolutely, yes. And with, with the, um, the the junk bonds that went with it, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's been described as the best business book ever. Yes, well, I mean, it. I, I think the reason is that as a journalist myself, I mean, one of the reasons I like it, it's written by two um, journalists, investigative journalists from the Wall Street Journal. 
and it's properly reported. I mean, they had hundreds and hundreds of conversations and then they cross-checked the conversations with as many of the people who were there as they could. But it's also written like a thriller and um, there's there's loads of fantastic detail in it. I mean, Ross Johnson, who ran RJR Nabisco and became a sort of symbol of corporate greed, one of the ways in which he abused his position is he flew his Alsatian dog back on a company jet from, I think, the West Coast to the East Coast. And for officialdom, they filled in the form and as a, he was called Passenger G. Shepherd. Which, and it's filled with little details like that. That, the, that bit with the, the dog, it was to avoid the fact that the dog had... The an dog insurance had claim bitten. the dog had bitten The dog someone. had bitten, I think, a gardener, perhaps, in, their, in their, one of their like, many houses. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were so worried that the dog would be put down that they had to um, sort of smuggle smuggle it out of California. One step ahead of the law on the private jet. Yeah. Let's just read the blurb as an introduction for people who don't know the book. Published in 1989, the book chronicles the battle for the control of RJR Nabisco in the autumn of 1988, which became the largest and most dramatic corporate takeover in American history sent shockwaves through the international business world and became a symbol of the greed, excess and egotism of the 80s. Barbarians at the Gate recounts this two-month battle with breathtaking pace and flair and transports us back to the Wall Street empire before it crumbled, through the boardroom doors, into the midnight meetings, the betrayals, the deal-makers and the publicity flax, into a world where, as Nabisco chief executive Ross Johnson put it, a few million dollars are lost in the sands of time. It very much centres around Ross Johnson, doesn't it? Yes, it does, and it's a fantastic portrayal of him. I mean, one of the things that I really like about the book and part of what justifies its length is that the backstories of everyone are very fleshed out, but um, that's particularly the case uh, with Ross Johnson. I mean, he is the most larger-than-life, loathsome and yet utterly compelling character and I think, you know, he was one of my favourite quotes, which you may allow me to say. It's, I mean, he, he basically, you know, he milked the company for all it was worth. I mean, they had the most enormous expense accounts. Um, and one of the things that was most disliked about the deal when it became public was that the original proposal by Ross Johnson, which was for him to buy out the company, to take it private, was that it involved a $2 billion payout to him and six other directors just for being there, just for being there. <laughs> so, but the one of the things that uh, that one of the fantastic quotes which you may cut from the final broadcast, but he says the only question is Johnson would say, is the screwing I'm getting worth the screwing I'm getting? <laughs> and I know he was, you know, drinking whiskey, late night sessions with his mates. I mean, he ran the company like a boys' club essentially. Um, and they were, he, they, what were they called? The Merry Men? Yeah, and he really didn't care about... I mean, he was the absolutely... I mean, one of the phrases that's used to describe him as a new breed of CEO for a new America, and I think that's almost core to why it's such an important book, mm-hmm. is because it was about the change from this idea that a company boss built his company slowly, delivered good value to stockholders, treated employees fairly, um, you know, it was a long-term investor. It marked the transition to the new type of CEO who essentially, you know, Ross Johnson had no interest in um, building up the company and expanding it in sustainable, profitable ways. He just wanted to use the cash flow essentially for his own enjoyment. It's it's what the um, the authors describe as the change from a company man to a, a non-company man. And the, the authors, 
they they offer they seem to offer a bit of an explanation on this they seem to suggest that there was a generational shift at this time from those people that mm. were Ross Johnson was born in the 1930s, but he was too young to remember the real effects of the Depression, whereas the generation that went before him were perhaps more frugal and more concerned because they had remembered the Great Depression in the 1930s. What do you think of that? Well, I think that melding of the personal and business is one of the reasons why it's such a good read. And I think it's mm. tr- it, th- there must be an element of truth in it. I mean, you know, if you've, got, if you've been through the Depression and you've been through the Second World War, you know, you don't necessarily want to take the risks that Johnson did. But I think actually more important, and Martin, you would, you would um, remember this better than, than I will, but in fact it was also a change in the law, wasn't it? It was the tax on dividends or something that fuelled the rise of, of junk bonds. I mean, there was a, there was a change in regulation or yes. taxation policy. The, uh, the, there was also a change in the perception of junk bonds, which Michael Milken of Drexel Burnham pioneered um, by doing a lot of analysis of the um, the failure rates of junk bonds and realising that um, a lot of these so-called fallen angels um, junk bonds actually were um, not as bad investments as people uh, people had suggested hitherto for. So there was a change on the junk bond side. But I think another important factor was a change in executive compensation in the 80s towards uh, lavish share options. And I think that changed the mood of the times as Yes, because, well. of course, Johnson, I mean, the very reason that Johnson got into this whole mess, as it turned out for him personally, was because he couldn't get the share price up. Because RJR was the tobacco bit of the company and Nabisco was the food bit. And tobacco stocks, you just couldn't get the price up. And he spent over a billion dollars buying back the stock. And the price simply didn't shift. So he thought... What can I do? Yeah. And the um, one of the other aspects of the uh, the transition that's it, it, it's important to note is that this whole idea of the old t- style of, of company manager, essentially, it was the idea that you preserved the capital base, that the capital base was your sort of your responsibility and the thing that you handed on to the next generation. And of course, it's completely opposite to the whole rationale of the LBO, which is that you hollow out the capital base to service debt. And of course. If you take the S and P five hundred now, it is you know the capital base of the S and P five hundred is relatively small compared to this the enormous amount of leverage loaded onto them. So it changed it changed things forever, didn't it? It did, but also there, there were an awful lot of inefficient companies out there that needed shaking up in the way that the. Um, leverage buyout firms or um, corporate raiders did. Yeah, because that's so important because that, I think that's one of the reasons why the book still speaks to us so strongly is because the debate over are LBOs a good thing or a bad thing is still incredibly live. You know, as you yes. say, I mean, for some it's the way to turn a bloated, inefficient company into a lean, mean, profit-making machine. And to others, it's the devil's spawn, you know, which is a way of essentially exploiting employees, bondholders, um, for the sake of short-term financiers who then waltz off into the sunset. Exactly. And the debate goes on and on and on. Yeah. (laughs) Martin, you took over as New York bureau chief a few months after the publication of Barbarians at the Gate, which was in 1989, and you reported on the aftermath of the bid battle. Yes, the the aftermath was, um, I think, quite, well, was painful for KKR, who won the bid because they had paid a huge amount of money and taken on vast amounts of debt to buy the company. And they had initial problems in servicing the debt and in rolling over the debt, which took them 
two or three years to to do satisfactorily. And then they ran into problems when they tried to sell off bits of the company. Or one of their plans was to um, divide up the tobacco side of the company from the um, consumer side. And market developments in the tobacco industry prevented that happening. There was a, a price war developed in the in the early nineties, and the investment over the long run for KKR was not a successful one. I mean, it's hard to say precisely what they made on it, but it was not a great deal, and it, it took up a huge amount of management time. And I think you know the lesson there, which again is eternal, is that you know during bids there's a risk of bidding up, get, getting in the situation where you have to win at all costs and you lose sight of the the financials which have spurred you on to do the bid in the first place. And they were very, I mean, it was, I mean, of course, one of the, the other reasons it's it resonant today is, is because all bids seem to be about egos and a clash of egos. And these were some of the biggest egos around at the time. I mean, it brings in the cast of all the Wall Street players at the time. Good find at Salomon, you know, the big investment bankers, Henry Kravis himself, of course, who was, you know, the god of Wall Street at the time, wasn't he? But um, what it does uh, really remind you is that, I mean, they got way, way in over their heads. I mean, they were, KKR was the most professional in a sense of the bidders, weren't they? Mm. But afterwards, Nabisco represented over half of the value of all the companies they'd invested in. They took this enormous bet. And then, I mean, were you in New York when the whole Michael Milken and the junk bond market exploded? Because that was one of the reasons they couldn't service. They had problems rolling over the debt, wasn't it? Yes, that happened a couple of months before I arrived there. (laughs) Um, but again, I was involved in the aftermath of that um, as Drexel Burnham unwound. Um, but yes, that was that was another huge factor at the time. And it was taken over by um, Lou Gerstner, who we know better for IBM. But what were your dealings with him? Um, well, I interviewed him at um, when he was at RJR in charge of it. I think about a year in, and talked through how the the refinancing was going, how the company's going at an operating level. He was very optimistic, as one would expect. But then not that long after, I guess a couple of years after that, he moved on to IBM. And the irony was that in the end, wasn't it, the tobacco bit of or the RJR bit of RJR Nabisco got sold off to, well, a subsidiary of Philip Morris, um, Reynolds' great rival. So in a sense, there was real, you know, the chickens came home to roost in a painful way they for did. everyone on this deal. Although not for Ross Johnson. No. No. <laughs> did either of you meet Ross Johnson? Oh no. 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 Well I'd love to meet him now. I mean he's still going he, strong. He is. He looks he, he looks plump and, and healthy in <laughs> he, his Wikipedia photos. Very recent photos of him if you Google him. Um what effect do you think the book had at the time? Um well it was uh I think it's worth putting in, in the context of the time. It was I think in the mid eighties that one started to get business books of this kind coming out in, in America starting with, uh, in 1985, a book called Greed and Glory on Wall Street, The Fall of the House of Lehman, by Ken Letter, which was a shorter but, again, forensic account looking inside the Lehman Investment Bank. And that was followed uh, a little afterwards by um, a book called uh, The Predator's Ball by Connie Brook, which looked inside Drexel Burnham Lambert and its relations with the great corporate bidders of the time. And then came this book, and this book really followed through on all the themes raised in the other books and and the um, the reportage of the other books. 
uh, and did it in much greater depth and um, at much greater length, really knocked the ball out of the park. So I think in terms of business books, this set a new a new bar. In terms of the company and, and Wall Street, the way it exposed the egos of these individuals, the mas- machinations, I think was not, well, it did not present a very um, pleasant public profile of either Wall Street or or corporate America, big corporate America. So I think that was influential. And then also the title was, I think, very influential going forward, Barbarians. Mm. Um, clearly KKR and co. would not want to be seen, didn't want to be seen as barbarians, but as part of the, the smooth running of the capitalist system. So I think the title uh, lingered on as well as a, a sort of negative over Wall Street. And I also think, I mean, it, it may not have acted as a cautionary tale for other deal makers <laughs> who seem to be only egged on to greater heights or lows, perhaps. But I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, Martin, that as I mean, I, when I read it for the first time several decades ago, I mean, it has informed the way as a business journalist, I look at deals, um, you know, the sort Definitely. of questions that it made you ask. And I think overwhelmingly, you know, something I feel very strongly as a business journalist, that people explain business. It's not numbers that explain business, it's people. And it makes that case so compellingly, don't you think? It does, absolutely. The, you know, it's driven by these extraordinary characters with terribly strong egos. Um, and, and that's what makes the book, and, and that's what made the deal. You're absolutely right. Yes. And it certainly makes one sceptical. You know, I, I mean, I've covered loads of, well, you've covered, we've both covered lots of deals over the last, you know, um, over our time at the FT. And, you know, that starting position of deals make people go a bit mad. is always a very good place to start. I'd like to bring in Yanina Conboy, who is our producer. She's been rummaging in the FT library to find our original review of Barbarians at the Gate. Yanina, what did you find? Well, I found that the FT had um, an FT review of business books. An uh, an entire supplement. Yes, an entire supplement. Um, I'm not sure how regularly it ran, but it was fairly often. An occasional series. Yeah. Thank you. Joy. So the review of Barbarians at the Gate was by um, the FT's former editor, Richard Lambert, and the headline's fantastic and kind of sums it all up, really. And it's called, um, the headline is, When Wall Street's God Was Greed. And one wonders if much really changed since this book was written. What did he say? Well, what he's done is it's similar to the book's essays that you get in FT Weekend at the moment in that it incorporates more than one title, um, but they're all along a similar theme. So in this instance, we had Barbarians at the Gate um, and also True Greed by Hope Lampert. And he highlights through the review some of the things we've already touched on, particularly the Alsatian in the private jet, for example. Um, He describes it as the most potent symbol of um, corporate excesses. And he also touched very briefly on how the book provides some startling insights into the behaviour of British as well as US predators, um, highlighting Hansen, which is the building materials company, which at the time was a big conglomerate, and then also another company called Beresford. You, you mentioned that he made the point that some of the detail in Barbarians at the Gate 
was a bit hard to believe. Was that right? Yeah. For me, when I was reading it after after the first chapter, the one thing that really struck me is that it's a fantastic read. But, for example, there's constructed conversations. And being a journalist, I'm kind of sat there thinking, how much of this mm. is engineered? Well, I have to say, I disagree quite strongly with that because that's one of the things I like about it is that, I mean, they, they address this issue in the introduction and say... You know, we did recreate conversations, but they say they only did that when there were two people who they could talk to who could corroborate what the other person said. So obviously there would be phrasing Mm -hmm. that was, you know, they can't have got the phrasing correct. And apart from anything else, I mean, the the speech is so convincing, Mm. isn't it? It is. It it has the flavour of real speech. And and they, they speak almost in scripted lines. Some of the lines in the book, they're so sharp, aren't they? They're one-liners. They're sort of the people speaking paragraphs, as you say. They can't possibly have spoken like that. But you get a sense of the characters through the speech. I think what Richard Lambert, when he was making the comparison of the two books... He felt that Barbarians of the Gate, Ross Johnson, was almost depicted. And these are Richard Lambert's words. He says here, Barbarians depicts Ross Johnson as a complete bozo, good only for shooting the breeze over a glass of whiskey and for keeping his board suite with lavish perks. And he goes on to say that that's hard to imagine and that true greed actually makes Ross Johnson a much rounder figure, capable of inspiring real loyalty. Mm. Yes, I don't know. I mean, I can't think of two people more different than Richard Lambert, our former editor, (laughs) and Ross Johnson. (laughs) I mean, is that a fair criticism, though? I mean, is Ross Johnson little more than a bozo? Well, I mean, the idea idea that you don't get bozos running big companies, I wish it was true. (laughs) I mean, you know, a lot of people get into positions of power in every walk of life who simply simply shouldn't be there, whose talents do not, or at least whose whose um, behaviour doesn't justify it. And I would have thought Johnson came under that label. But, I mean, the other thing is that he's, the authors are universally critical of everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not that Johnson, you know, is treated as some sort of pantomime villain and everyone else looks like real, you know, lovable people. <laughs> I mean, the portrayals of Gutfreund or of Kravis yes. or, yeah. I mean, they're absolutely vicious, aren't they? <laughs> Nobody yeah. comes yeah. out of it well. No. And we talked, I mean, we we talked briefly uh, about how few women there are in this book. It's really noticeable. It's something to me, coming to it for the first time, really stood out. What do you think about that, Sarah? Well, rereading it after not having read it for a couple of decades, um, I noticed it and I don't think I'd have noticed it a couple of decades Mm, ago. (laughs) So that was interesting for me. But the you know, there's there's a token, there's Linda Robinson, who's married to the boss of American Express, isn't yes. she? And she's a PR woman, and she's treated as a kind of, you know, lightweight, essentially. I mean, when I was reading it, I was thinking, A, it doesn't bother me in terms of my enjoyment of the story, but B, rather than thinking, gosh, things would be different if you were writing about a deal battle now, I kept thinking, goodness me, you know, M&A is still, it's still a boy's game. Mm-hmm. Martin and I were trying before we started, weren't we? To, to think of, of anyone and can't. I mean, it is still very much a boys' game, uh, as is M and A on the legal side as well. Yeah, I mean, investment mm. bankers, the lawyers involved. Mm. I mean, I don't know whether. I mean, you know, it's always um, dangerous to sort of generalise, but there is something. I mean, and certainly the, the deal this portrays is very much fueled by testosterone, yes. isn't it? I mean, it's about, in the end, yeah. it becomes about, it's not about the company, it's not about the price, it's not about the employees, it's just about winning. Dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> but fun, in a way. 
What does the book tell us about the role of boards? Well, I think it's very relevant to particularly what happened in the financial crisis because one of the most really awful but yet compelling tales in the book is how Ross Johnson managed his boards. And he said rather brilliantly but sickeningly, one of the most important jobs a CEO has is the care and feeding of the directors. And um, the authors say he, he played boards like a personal symphony orchestra. And I think that it's a very um, persuasive picture of a board which essentially was bought off from its real role of oversight and supervision and critical oversight with enormous amounts of goodies and plane journeys and wonderful events and, and charm. I mean, Johnson was clearly a very charming man. And of course, that has enormous um, relevance for what happened at somewhere like, for example, Lehman, where Dick Fould was the unchallengeable CEO, the board, which was made up of incredibly illustrious senior people, wasn't it? But they they didn't, you know, they didn't question him, they didn't criticise him, and he had too much power. So... I think that lesson, you know, that example goes on and on being repeated much to the detriment of um, investors and indeed the public. Indeed. Martin. Yes, and occurred during the 90s and after in in the the big corporate scandals of, of that era where, again, you had very powerful chief executives often combining the the role of chairman as well on on their companies in the United States who were just not challenged and um, they went down in flames. I mean, like Enron. Like Enron, Mm. classically. Martin, can you tell us a bit about how we reported events at the time? Well, uh, we had a very strong team in our New York office and the point person on the bid was Jamie Bucken, who went on to be a very well-known writer after leaving the FT uh, and who had a wonderful, still has a wonderful way with words. And it's perhaps just worth quoting the way he introduced his story on the day the battle was decided. This was the ultimate Wall Street drama. For its last 24 hours, the battle for Argyar Nabisco had almost everything. Rage, greed, guys in braces staying up late in midtown offices, debt, soft drinks and lawyers. (laughs) What it did not have was more hard cash for the owners of Argyar Nabisco. God, it's such an enviable introduction, isn't it? It really is. (laughs) And... um, a little, a little code of that is that uh, at the end of the year, the FT chose as its men of the year uh, Messrs. Kravis and Roberts, oh. the principals of uh, KKR. And do win- we do we know bidder. why? Do we know why? Well, they on they were they were top dogs on Wall Street. They they'd won the the biggest, most valuable bid of all time, and by by a number of multiples. I mean, a hugely much bigger deal yes. than had ever been done before, before. Um, and was to be done for a long time afterwards. Sarah, can you give us a bluffer's guide to the book? Yes, I sort of feel Jamie's, Jamie Buchan's intro is the best. <laughs> I might have to steal his intro and pretend I came up with it. Um, but no, I came up with a short bluffer's guide, which was mm-hmm. greed is not good. And then my slightly longer one, if you if you want to pretend that you've read it's 600 pages odd, although I would highly recommend that you do so, even if you're not interested in business, because it, it reads like a thriller, doesn't it? It does. And, it does. Um, so is... Barbarians at the Gate tells the story of one of the most fought-over deals ever, the takeover of RJR Nabisco. It's a reminder that uh, that's as relevant today as it was then, that whether a business succeeds or fails is not about numbers, but about people. Very good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our next business book is chosen by Michael Skopinka, the FT's business and society columnist. Michael has chosen a novel, Catch-22, by Joseph Heller. Here's Michael with his pitch. 
Joseph Heller's Catch-22 was one of the 1960s most celebrated novels, indeed one of the great works of 20th century American fiction. The book depicts a U.S. Air Force base on a fictionalized island off the Italian coast during the Second World War. Its central character is Captain Yossarian, responsible for dropping bombs on German targets in Nazi-occupied Italy. Terrified of dying and desperate to go home, Yossarian begs to be grounded. But the only way he can achieve that is by proving his own insanity. And as you have to be crazy to fly these dangerous missions, anyone who doesn't want to fly them is plainly not crazy and cannot be grounded. This was Catch-22, which has entered the language to mean an either-way-I-lose conundrum. Catch-22 remains dazzling, dark and funny, with a wonderfully named cast that includes Major Major Major, Milo Minderbender and Lieutenant Scheisskopf. But can we describe it as a business book? I think we can. It is one of the great business books. Anyone who has worked in a business or indeed in any organization will recognize superiors promising more than their underlings can deliver, the time-honored but inexplicable procedures, the buck-passing, the perverse incentives and the arbitrary upping of targets. The bureaucratic craziness depicted in Catch-22 remains as fresh as when it was published 55 years ago, evidence that life and literature move on, but organisations barely change. Will you be reading Catch-22? Tweet us with the hashtag FTBizBooks or email us at businessbookclub at ft.com. Join us again on November the 7th. Until then, thank you to Sarah Gordon, to Martin Dixon and to our producer Yanina Conboy. And thank you for listening. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.